Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the podcast that takes pop culture seriously. This week, we're going to be discussing the new Potterverse film, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the BBC adaptation of Zadie Smith's novel NW, and Caroline read Tarvi Gevinson's The Infinity Diaries for the first time, so we'll be talking about that too. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. First of all, thanks so much to everyone who listened to our Gilmore Girls special last week. We've had lots of great feedback from that and it was so fun to do, wasn't it? It was so lovely and all of you getting in touch with your favourite moments and with your fan theories. Shout out to the person who sent us tweets about Paris and Doyle. We are also still completely in the world of all things Stars Hollow because our Seriously Gilmore Girls quiz is happening tonight as you listen to this. That is Tuesday in the past if you're listening to this weeks later. So if you are coming along, we really look forward to seeing you. And if you're not, we hope to be able to welcome you to an event in the future. We're putting Gilmore Girls aside for a week in terms of what we're talking about today. But rest assured, we will be talking about the next Netflix special next week once it's actually aired, right? So A Year in a Life is out on Friday the 25th of November. And so your next episode next Tuesday will feature much discussion of this. And then everyone who hates Gilmore Girls can breathe a great sigh of relief because we'll probably be done with Gilmore Girls at that point for now. (laughs) Yeah, we'll confine our thoughts only to Twitter and your podcast will be a Gilmore Girls free zone. So uh, the first thing we're going to talk about this week is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the new film set in the wizarding world of Harry Potter with a screenplay by J.K. Rowling. Taking its title from a school textbook of the same name, it follows Newt Scamander, played by Eddie Redmayne, as he attempts to round up escaped magical animals in New York City. But as the film unfolds, we realise that these sometimes dangerous creatures are nothing compared to much darker forces at work. I didn't really know what to expect from this film. I don't know about you. No, me neither. I think I, in the wake of like cursed child disappointment from earlier this year, I had consciously lowered my expectations you know, because I was quite excited about like, oh my God, it's another Harry Potter film. I get to go to the cinema again and see a, you know, a Harry Potter world film that I haven't seen before. But I was consciously like, no, don't get too excited because you're excited about The Cursed Child and look how that turned out. So were you disappointed like last time? No, I had a nice time at the cinema. Yeah, same. I found this film very enjoyable. Yeah. I think this is quite a strange film because I feel like when it was announced, the idea that this would be following Newt Scamander, who is a very, very minor referenced character in the yeah, Harry Potter series. Yeah, we don't ever meet him. No, and we just know that he wrote this book, basically, and there's like a couple of references to him throughout the series. People were a bit like, why? 
And in this film, Newt is young, he's charismatic. You can tell that they've had a lot of fun making the animals. But a part of me is still a bit like, I wonder why they decided to go with this front for this plotline. Because I think in another way, this is a film of two stories, right? It's the story of Newt Scamander, young zoologist roaming around the city with all these random animals in his TARDIS-like bag. And it's also the story of a dark wizard rising to power for the first time at the same time as all this real world history is happening in the the end of the 20s, 30s, so on. I wonder why she chose to put those two things together, if that makes sense. I know what you mean. Whilst I did feel like the Grindelwald storyline in this film does promise great things from the ones to follow it, you know, it's a good and interesting and intriguing setup. I did feel a bit like, well, I enjoyed Eddie Redmayne's animal-based antics, but I still don't really know why I watched them. Mm-hmm. It's funny because a lot of people I spoke to either like really loved the animals part and really wasn't that into the like serious dark magic politics part or vice versa. Mm. I'm probably more pro the dark magics part of this storyline. I was a bit confused as to why I was really watching the Eddie Redmayne plotline, as you say. But I also was really convinced, and we are going to get a bit spoilery now, so if you haven't seen the film and you're going to see the film, maybe come back to this i thought that what was going to happen towards the end of the film was that we were going to realize that perhaps a dark wizard had released all these animals as a distraction so that they could sort of rile up the muggle population in order to start a war between muggles and wizards over wizarding secrecy that never happened the plots never really connected up it was just like at the same time as eddie redmayne is running around after all these escaped animals in new york there is the world's greatest dark wizard at large possibly disguised as a member of the american wizarding government doing bad things trying to find vulnerable children etc there's not really any overlap between those plots at all apart from this concept of the obscurus which is the vague area of overlap right yeah i guess that's the only overlap the obscurus being what happens when it's hinted a child who's been abused who has magical abilities suppresses them in order to stay safe or whatever the obscurus is this kind of uncontrollable dark force that they end up unleashing when provoked rather than having a more like healthy controlled relationship with their magic shout out to my colleague amelia who noticed that the name of the publishers that published the comic relief books fantastic beasts and where to find them and quidditch through the ages is called obscurus books and it has a little half moon as its logo that is interesting So as far as I can tell, the only link between the two storylines, really, apart from the geographical one that they're both happening in the same place, is that Eddie Redmayne, in his recent travels in Africa, he mentions having come across a girl in Sudan who was an Obscurus, Mm -hmm. and that he managed to trap the Obscurus element as she was dying. Oh, I think he tried to separate them and she died in the process or something. But another setup they mention is that if you're a child and you're an Obscurial, which is the name of someone sort of manifesting this obscurest thing you won't live past the age of 10 they say that a couple of times so this girl was obviously going to die anyway and he was going to try and save her but she died in the process so you've got this weird situation where Newt Scamander is working on trying to figure out basically like a cure for the obscurest phenomenon and at the same time again big spoiler alert Grindelwald disguised as Graves played by Colin Farrell is trying to find a way to harness the power of the obscurial right for dark ends yeah so there is this very unusual boy called Credence who is in his late teens he's like supposed to be 17 or 18 right Mm -hmm. who is an obscurial it's implied he comes from a very difficult abusive background 
he's been adopted by this anti-magic preacher woman who calls what's her sect called the second salemers or something like that yeah the new salem philanthropic society yeah and she beats him all the time and is obviously really anti-magic Somehow, though, he has managed to survive longer than any other Obscurial Mm. until he's finally provoked by Grindelwald into releasing it and then he unleashes this horrible, horrible havoc all on New York. And that was something that I found really interesting about this film because we've watched New York get smashed up so many times in films, right? Not least recently in the Marvel superhero films. They love to do that. Like the Avengers Assemble movie, it's the best bit of the film when, you know, aliens punch New York to pieces. Yeah. So we've watched that so many times that it can start to feel a bit cliched. Mm. But I don't think I've ever watched it before where I've felt sorry for the person doing it. Yeah, that's true. So that was a really interesting twist on that is that, yeah, New York is getting destroyed. Yeah, civilians are running in panic. Yeah, it's awful. But also the great big black cloud mass that is Credence who is doing it. You think, well, this is horrible for him too. He doesn't want to do it. He's out of control. Mm -hmm. And this cannot end well for him now. I didn't love the idea of like a person being this like big black cloud of magic. To me, there are some things that didn't match up with the way magic seemed to work in the Harry Potter series. Mm. And people don't tend to be like smoke in the Harry Potter (laughs) books. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing to say that that can't happen. And it's obviously JK Rowling's idea. And who am I to be like, that doesn't seem quite right. But it just didn't quite merge with me with the magic I've known. It's the same going for the Niffler that seemed to be able to just hide all this gold like inside Mm. its body in a way that I found weird because I feel like normally that would be a thing that was enchanted by a wizard to be able to do stuff like that it doesn't seem as natural as like house elves being able to apparate it seems somehow it should be enchanted to be that way so that i felt weird about those it didn't help that in the same weekend i went to see this film i also re-watched the alan partridge christmas special knowing me knowing you and in it (laughs) at some point alan gets asked what he thinks god is and he goes oh it's like a gas i guess and then several times in the episode as he gets challenged on like the religious nature of christmas he comes back to like oh someone says god doesn't have a leg to stand on he goes um excuse me god is a gas so god doesn't have legs and so then i went to this film and i was like credence is a gas <laughs> though i have to say aside from the weird gas thing credence was my favorite character i think and i like the idea that we're sort of getting an origin story playing out here where credence is basically being pulled between grindelwald who he has this sort of almost sexual relationship with which is by the way a lot more sexual in the screenplay there's lots of oh, touching really? okay. and sighing and it's very sort of implied which i feel like it's a little bit problematic that the first time that we actually see like gayness at work in mm. harry potter it's because it's like some evil guy preying on a young boy it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable but anyway another point for another day i like the fact that we're seeing that tension between which way he's gonna go is he gonna go to the dark side as it were and support grindelwald because he's got this sort of love for him or is he gonna be persuaded by people like newt on the side of good because he seems like a good guy at his heart and i feel like we're as a culture so obsessed with like origin stories especially Mm. superhero origin stories and there are so many of them in harry potter that are like that like harry feels torn at points because he knows that voldemort's inside him malfoy voldemort himself snape all of these young men with difficult childhoods who feel torn but i like that it's sort of happening in real time and we don't know which way it's gonna go because it feels like for so long we always know how everything's gonna end up in harry potter we know that this film series is gonna end with that 1945 battle between dumbledore and grindelwald but we don't know which way Credence is going to go. And I really like that. So I'm enjoying that. And this film made me think of so many 
many questions about where she's going to take this next. Yeah, it was really interesting. I also, unlike some of the people I went to see the film with, I enjoyed some of the new characters Mm -hmm. in it. So I actually quite liked the character of Tina, who is the disgraced aura, American aura, who Newt kind of teams up with. Mm-hmm. I did think at times, given that she's, you know, like a magical law enforcement professional, at times she was a little bit like quivery. Yeah, not that quick to use magic at times was yeah. another thing that I felt the whole way through this film. A lot of the characters would be like, grab a teapot. And then you'd be like, you're wizards. You can make a teapot appear in thin air. Why don't you do something like that? Anyway. But yeah, I did I did quite enjoy her. And I, as you say, like it, it's nice to meet new characters in a world that you think you know really well. Mm-hmm. What did you make of Tina's sister? I thought weirdly that the chemistry between her and the muggle character, I think it's really interesting that we have a mm. muggle character in this now because we never really have charismatic muggles actually involved in like the magical action of the plot ever before and I thought they had really really great chemistry that lifted a lot of that plot line for me because that was the one that I sometimes was a bit like guess what he's gonna find the animals in the end I know it so (laughs) I don't really care yeah I did really enjoy Jacob that's the muggle's name Mm -hmm. involvement in the whole thing like the scene in the bank where he and Eddie Redmayne's character are dashing about after a niffler is really funny really funny I also really enjoyed the bit at the end where you see despite the fact that Jacob's memory has had to be erased because you know he's not allowed to participate in the magical world you know he obviously still remembers quite a lot of it because he's making pastries in the shape of some of the creatures and I thought that was a really funny touch and yeah. really nice and I don't think we've seen the end of Jacob Kowalski as no well. not for a second I really liked his character and I did like some of the hints we got as well of the differences between British and American ma- magical society mm-hmm. like obviously the well publicized one has been that in America non-magical people are called nomadges in mm-hmm. Britain we know them as muggles But like the hint, and it wasn't played up very much, but they mentioned, for instance, in America, wizards aren't allowed to marry muggles or even even be friends with them. Whereas obviously in Britain, we know that there are wizards who won't be friends with muggles, but there are plenty who will. And a lot of people will have like one muggle parent and one magical parent, but they'll be married and know everything about each other. It's not just like, oh, they had an illicit affair. Yeah, so obviously wizarding secrecy in America has gone a lot further yeah. than it has in, in Britain. And that's really interesting. And I assume that the subsequent films are going to explore that more. I because, so. you know, events like Credence smashing up New York are only going to like polarise people mm-hmm. further on the issue of secrecy, aren't they? Yeah, and I liked all of that political stuff in this about muggles v wizards, greater good, all of that stuff that we've heard before, but has never really been explored in that much mm. detail which is really nice. And I was just wondering where you think these sorts of plot lines are going to go. Two things that I thought about a lot was this sort of obscurist phenomenon and how that might relate back to Ariana Dumbledore, who we know um, basically had a sort of similar explosion that killed her mother when she was young, but she was about 14, so she was older than 10, definitely. And that came after some muggle children had attacked her for her magic and she was hidden away after that and presumably her magic was suppressed. And I wonder if this is something that Grindelwald saw and then was part of the fallout between Grindelwald and Dumbledore. And that's now why he's got this idea of the obscurials in his mind if she if she was one. Although it's not doesn't seem to quite 100% add up with the idea of like, oh, no one's lived past 10 and these sorts of ideas. But Credence has, but I guess that case isn't known or publicised, so it could still be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought of that, the fact that she could well be one. I'm also just interested in the early years of Grindelwald generally because, you know, he only appears in Dumbledore's memories as a young man and then in the brief scene where Voldemort goes to see him in the seventh book, that's it. 
So the kind of middle period of Grindelwald is really interesting. I mean, we should probably address the casting of Grindelwald as well. Yeah, so he's played by Johnny Depp, which is depressing. And I'm sure I mentioned this maybe on the podcast before that I was like the world's biggest Johnny Depp fan as a teenager and like met him a whole bunch of times. So I feel really like sad even being like, yeah, it's such a shame that he's cast in this film because he was such a like an idol for me when I was a teenager. But obviously, you know, we know what we know. He did what he did and it's really bad that he's in these movies. But I think think what becomes clear after you go and see this film is that he was cast before these allegations came out right and i think perhaps a lot of the team are kind of pretending that they're completely delighted and would have cast him anyway but i'm not sure they would have done to be honest and i think once you've cast someone in this first film it's clear from watching this film that there's not there was no way around it they couldn't really be like actually we're going to cast someone else and go back and reshoot all these expensive scenes yeah i think they were pretty much fucked once that happened so i can see how it's ended up in this like very very not ideal situation yeah and i i did see people on social media you know saying oh i can't decide whether i want to go and see fantastic beasts or not because i had decided i wasn't going to see any more johnny depp films but and yeah that's a legitimate dilemma that everyone has to decide for themselves how they feel about it Mm -hmm. once upon a time i think i would have been so delighted that these two sort of areas of fandom had could sort of overlapped but now obviously just leaves such a bad taste in your mouth so it's a shame that such a crucial harry potter part is going to be played by someone with such a you know obviously abusive history towards women but we'll see we'll see where they go from here Now we're going to talk about NW, which is a BBC TV adaptation of Zadie Smith's 2012 novel of the same name. It follows the fortunes of four classmates from a North West London primary school and the paths their lives take once they move away from the council estate where they grew up. I read this book just this summer, actually. I don't know if you have read it. I've never read it. I've owned a copy for years and I've been moving it from flat to flat and I still haven't. But I'm definitely going to now that I've seen the TV show. It's one of those novels and stories that isn't so much about the events of the plot as it is the sort of themes and discussions it raises. So um, I guess... It's hard for, to talk about, I think, as a, as a film because so many of the different social issues it tackles are like very, very intertwined and mm. like hard to separate. I thought the casting was really, really good. Yeah, both Phoebe Fox and Nikki Amuka Bird are just so like the characters okay. that she's, she's gonna written in the book. That, actually, yeah. yeah, especially because they're quite conflicted characters, which can often be quite hard to cast, I think. Nikki Amuka Bird, especially, you can see how she is almost like two characters at once. Yeah, I absolutely loved her performance in this. Mm-hmm. I thought it was amazing because she does play essentially two characters in the same person mm-hmm. because the 
the track of her character is that you know so she's a very very bright black girl from a northwest london council estate and she works incredibly hard in order to quote get out Mm -hmm. and you know she becomes a leading barrister and she marries a very rich person and they have this beautiful house and lovely children and she changes her name like she's uh, when she's at school she's called Keisha and then she ch- she changes her name she becomes Natalie and you know there's all this kind of stuff packed in there about black people and ambition and having to conform to white expectations and all of these things but then that's all layered in there but then on a personal level she really struggles with the fact that she's essentially achieved everything she set out to achieve and that she still feels lonely she's really lonely yeah I think there's a really interesting dynamic in this novel about you sort of see people from lots of different rungs almost of society, right? If you want to be like blunt and lay it out in that way. So you've got these two girls who are doing fairly well for themselves. So Natalie's doing really, really well for herself. She's got an amazing house in a really nice area of London, an amazing job, the perfect cute family the husband who is both wealthy and culturally elite in some way. And then you've got Leah who is not doing as well as that. She still lives in a in a council flat, doesn't she? But it's a nice one and she's paying for at least some of it and she is happy with her relationship and she's not, for example, addicted to drugs or homeless or experiencing some of these problems that some of the other children from their primary school are experiencing as adults and then you've got these other fringe characters who aren't doing so well but the higher up you go in society the more lonely almost these Mm. people seem to become and Zadie Smith did lots of great interviews and and pieces of writing around the time NW came out about how she felt about having moved out of like a council estate into she said she was living in a block of flats in New York that actually like a big tower block that looked very similar to her old council estate but just didn't have the same sense of community and she writes very well on this idea of like should people even want to get out is the concept of social mobility flawed in that actually there's there's nothing to say that one life has more worth than another there's nothing to say that Natalie's life when she's successful is better than her life when she's not and I think it's really interesting because there's basically no easy answers in this no, adaption. There, there isn't. And it becomes bigger than a question of like a storyline in a single book, doesn't it? You know, mm-hmm. this idea that we've built this whole narrative around you have to work hard and, quote, get out of the terrible circumstances you'll find yourself in and live a different kind of life. But mm-hmm. really, the question she's posing is if you were to solve the structural problems that make your original life difficult, i.e. poverty and welfare dependency and all that kind of thing, mm-hmm. what else is wrong with it? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. And we've just kind of got set into this mindset of, well, I've got to leave, otherwise I haven't progressed. Mm-hmm. And Leah, as a character, is having this struggle where she finds out she's pregnant. Basically, I think she gets an abortion over the course of the yeah. adaption. Her partner really wants to have children. And I think children for her become a symbol of like climbing a, a social ladder and like the next stage of your life. And she says some really sad stuff towards the end, doesn't she, about like not wanting her life to change, not wanting to move forward not wanting to have a kid watch it grow up as she grows old and dies yeah and I thought that was quite powerful and like it takes a lot to say actually maybe I like my life just the way it is and I'm not looking for the next step but it is that is really sad and difficult but then on the other side of that in the same conversation she says 
I just want it to be me and him forever. Mm. And she just says, I'm perfectly happy with us just as we are. Mm -hmm. We don't need anything. We don't need to move to a different stage. We are fine. And that actually for me was one of the best moments in the whole adaptation was when she finally admits. So she and Natalie have this really fraught friendship where they kind of fight and they argue and, you know, Leah has a go at all of Natalie's choices and stuff. But at this kind of moment of crisis when Leah can't get out of a hammock because she's had an abortion and she's so depressed about it. And she finally opens up to like what's actually going on with her. And her husband's like gone into the kitchen to get drinks or something and she's talking about it. And he hears her like, and you think your heart's in your mouth. You're like, oh my God, he's found out that she's had an abortion. He's going to leave her or hate her or make her life horrible. And then he just comes out and like hands everyone their drinks and he just like smiles at her and you just know like no he's gonna be okay like, mm. he's, he's heard that she wants to just be with him and that's yeah. part of her dilemma and actually he is a better man than your brain immediately allows him to be mm-hmm. because he didn't just hear the you killed our kid bit he hears the because you want to be as we are yeah you're happy with me yeah which is great and there's another great line in that scene where Leah says i just don't understand why my life and your life has turned out like they are and we're not doing badly. Like, why Why aren't I Shah, who's this woman who basically steals money from her at the beginning because she's desperate? So she's just like, I don't understand why I have the life that I have, the good life that I have. And uh, Natalie says, oh, it's because we worked harder. I know that that's not like the answer you want. It's an ugly answer, but that's the truth. And it's this horrible moment because obviously as an audience... I like to think most people don't accept that. Mm. <laughs> they dis- disagree with what Natalie's saying. Leah definitely disagrees with what Natalie's saying. Zadie Smith in lots of interviews was like, yeah, I was really shocked that a lot of people were like, yeah, completely agree. So glad he spoke the hard <laughs> truth. And she was like, no, you really missed the irony of this scene. Um, and yeah, I think that's, it's, it's, it's kind of, I like the way that it stays unresolved. And even though Natalie's sort of trying to convince herself that she deserves the life she's got when she's saying it, that and also that she even wants it yeah exactly that they allow all these sort of questions to stay open at the end it's really really smart and the way they the way they adapted that from the book keeping that line because i remember reading the book and thinking that line was like the line of the of the end of the novel it's such a beautiful adaptation Mm. as well and i always really really enjoy it when a director and a a writer make a part of any city that is not generally considered to be beautiful look beautiful yeah and apparently they only shot it in like a few days or less than a couple of weeks or something in in kilburn Mm. um which is even more amazing because it is so beautifully shot and well and so uh, evocative of that very specific area it's not just like oh this is london you're Mm. like oh this is you know kilburn it is northwest london it's something that jonathan meads always gets at in his films about brutalism and stuff which is that it's perfectly possible to make this style of architecture and this idea of buildings look amazing people just don't want to try the rest of the time (laughs) and i i felt like this adaptation bore that out as well because you know it takes what the public consciousness generally considers to be quite grotty tower blocks Mm -hmm. and shows both how they are homes and communities but also how they are just really beautiful structures yeah definitely well so i think it's on iplayer so definitely check it here's a cool fact A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So last week I recommended that Caroline read Tarvi Gevinson's Infinity Diaries, which were a series of, I think, six posts on her website, Rookie, from back in September. I think maybe they bled into October, can't quite remember. So Caroline, what did you make of the Infinity Diaries? It's such an interesting piece of writing and not at all what I was expecting because I'm used to reading Tarvi's editor's letters mm-hmm. where, you know, she writes about the theme of the issue that month and you know, how they came to choose it and the various different strands that it's going to involve. And so I think I was expecting something a bit like that, whereas actually this is a really personal piece of writing split into six parts and it covers a period of time quite a long time ago. Like it's when she first moved to New York when she was 18, I Mm -hmm. think, to perform in the play This Is Our Youth. And it draws a lot on her own journal entries from that time But it also blends that in with how she feels now and her writing now and all the things that she's read in between. So there's lots of like Joan Didion and Maggie Nelson and Goethe and all kinds Mm -hmm. of like influences in there. And it makes something quite, quite complicated and quite striking. Yeah, it's almost philosophical, isn't it? Um, Yeah. And I think you can tell that there is the influence of these writers like... Maggie Nelson, who are doing not just creative nonfiction, but something almost academic as well mm, with that. Something critical. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really loved these pieces of writing because it, it can go from very sort of in-depth discussions of like the nature of mortality to like a funny anecdote about running into Chloe Savini while dressed up as Chloe Savini. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Also, there's quite a lot of, I'm not exactly sure when she interviewed Taylor Swift, but that interview is quite an influence on these pieces of writing as well. And she writes so interestingly about some of the songs on 1989, like New Romantics particularly, and feeds, feeds in some of the stuff in Taylor's lyrics into her feelings about the relationship she was in while she was in This Is Our Youth. Um, Yeah, it's such a kind of magpie-like way of approaching writing, but it's so interesting. You can really see the trajectory from Tarvi Gevinson's blog from when she was 
a young teenager, she had this blog called Style Rookie, which I'm sure lots of Seriously listeners will be familiar with. Others might not be. But it was this very magpie-like, as you say, collection of like film stills and like uh, the outfit she was wearing that day and song lyrics. And she would like make this sort of fantasy world out of lots of different things. And you can still kind of see that that approach in her writing where she like picks lots of different things and weaves them into this big tapestry. And suddenly you step back and you're a bit like, whoa, everything's connected. And I think that's really cool. That's what I love so much about writers like Ali Smith. And it's amazing that she's doing stuff like that when she's so young. Yeah, she is so young. And, you know, she's also trying to pursue a different career. Like she's a Broadway actress. So, yeah, it is really interesting that she's doing that. And I also just really like details about her life because she's such as you say an exceptional person you know she's done so much so young and so independently and so so self-sufficiently that you know just details like when she says that she's now got like 70 journals and she keeps them in a fireproof safe in her apartment that's shaped like a fridge and stuff (laughs) things like that I just absolutely love yeah amazing well I'm so glad you enjoyed it and I think that she said that she's planning on writing more like this and potentially a book so I'd be so excited very interested in that yeah so Caroline what are you going to recommend me for next week well you said you were interested in watching some more old movies I am my knowledge has got some real I want to say gaps but actually it's just one big gaping (laughs) (laughs) well I can't claim in any way to be a 30s to 50s movie buff but I was lucky in that one of my best friends at university did a film studies module and he had to watch like the classic Hollywood canon Mm -hmm. and obviously it's kind of sad and boring to have to watch like 20 movies on your own so I watched quite a lot of them with him so I have seen at least some of the like really famous ones and I thought I might recommend you this time bringing up baby oh great which is a 1938 film starring Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn and I think it generally gets held up as being like the archetypal screwball comedy Mm -hmm. which is interesting in itself because screwball comedy is a genre that's associated with better and more interesting roles for kind of quote independent women yeah Um, and in particular I think this one I think it was adapted from a short story but it was adapted for Catherine Hepburn they were like you are a really interesting actress who wears trousers all the time and doesn't take any shit what kind of film can we put you in Mm -hmm. and this was what they came up with wicked well I can't wait to try it out see what it's like Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including in iTunes, where you could also leave us a rating and a review because it helps other people find the show. We're also available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr, SRSLYpod on all of them. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or just hearing your thoughts on what we've discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.